You are listening to Investing Matters, brought to you in association with London South East. This is the show that provides informative, educational and entertaining content from the world of investing. We do not give advice, so please do your own research. Hello and welcome to the London South East Investing Matters podcast. My name is Peter Higgins and today I'm here with George Barrow, the co-fund manager of Polar Capital Financial Trust. George, how are we doing? Very good, thanks, Peter. Thanks for having me on. I wanted to talk to you, George, with regards to the Polar Capital Global Financial Trust, of which you're a co-manager, yeah? But I wanted to start initially with your educational aspects and you're graduating from SOAS in London. And just talk to me a bit about that, really, because it was more about um, global studies that you were doing at that stage, correct? That's right. I read uh, international studies at uh, SOAS in London for my master's, and I was very interested in, in international relations, and, and that led on to first job at, at a think tank called ICG, and so that provides analysis on, on conflicts around the world and, and is used by governments to inform policy decisions. And you know, at the time, I felt you know that was sort of where my career might be heading. I mean, I'd used research for my master's dissertation and, and I like the fact that it was analytical but also involved you know my interest in incomes and, and um and it was it was a very interesting place to start you know I got a chance to you know sit in on, on parliamentary committees I think the kind of issue of Darfur was very sort of prominent at the time so that was exciting to see how policy is formed and, and, and the interaction with think tanks but ultimately I kind of realized that you know that wasn't for me as a longer term career and at the time you know, I had a growing interest in, in financial markets. So I so wanted to combine that with an analytical role and, and that led on to the start of sort of asset management. Indeed. So you're in your mid-20s and you join as a junior analyst at Him Capital covering the financial sector. So tell us about, about that and going in at that very young stage as a junior analyst and what that meant and what your role was as a junior analyst. Yeah, I mean, it was just just starting out, so really just learning from from people around me, you know, learning the basics of, of fundamental analysis and and learning about the sector. So, you know, financial sector funds. You know, my focus at the time was was on Europe, so covering the region and, and supporting the, the fund managers in terms of their their stock selection uh, and coverage. And you know, I started right at the time of the the global financial crisis, so it was quite a time to to join and and, and focus on the sector, and it felt like. Each weekend, there would be new rumours uh, about a bank run or, or some kind of systemic issue. And maybe it was a blessing that it was the beginning of my career because I didn't appreciate probably quite how significant the event was. But, you know, I certainly benefited from having people around me who had been through other cycles and, and seen downturns, uh, although maybe not as, as large a shock as, as the GFC. But in your early stages of your career, you really benefit from having that, that experience around me. And I kind of, in the subsequent 12, 13 years, you can see how profound an impact that downturn has had on the sector and, and continues to have. And, and, you know, post that, we saw 10 years plus of regulatory tightening. We saw capital build. We saw significant fines. And, you know, looking back, at, I think as an analyst, that continues, you know, having been through that experience, I think you always retain a focus on balance sheet strength and on, on risk management, having seen, you know, some of the effects of going through such a downturn. And I think on the other side, it's interesting to see the extent to which that continues to inform people's perception of the sector going forward, even today. So despite the fact that the sector might have much stronger capital and stronger funding, I think we still see perceptions which may be a bit out of date. 
and as a as an investor i suppose that that opens up opportunities for us absolutely and i, and I agree with you wholeheartedly regarding the changes that have been made since um the gfc i wanted to go back because you touched on a really really important point here as when you started it was the beginning of your career and you had so many other people around you as well that gave you and enabled you to, to gain so much more experience. Could you share with me some of the learning points during that phase of going in and of obviously experiencing the GFC for the first time as a newbie even? Yeah, I mean, it's, I think you, you gauge the level of concern by the reaction of those around you. You know, those that have seen it and been through other downturns and I think being in a team which has a real depth of experience is, is absolutely invaluable. And, you know, I, I've been lucky to work with some very talented investors and, and experienced investors. And I've worked closely with, with John Yakas, who's a co-manager on, on the trust and on financial opportunities. So he has a, a deep knowledge of the sector and, and has always been willing to share that. He came from the sell side where he's head of research on, for Asia and, and he's always had a sort of methodical approach to it. And I think he's been able to, to facilitate building out a lot of research in, in-house. So we have a database which we track over sort of 300 companies. And I think what's been good to learn from him is that to trust your own analysis and, and to trust the research that you do, you're not reliant on external providers, external um, your sort of sell-side ideas. And, and that gives you the confidence to be contrarian. And I think that's been a, you know, a big lesson that I've learned from, from working with John and, and you know, others like, you know, Nick Brind, who's the other co-manager on the trust, and, and people like Alec Foster, who, who managed the insurance fund, they have a lot of experience and, and they've certainly seen a number of downturns. And, and when you invest in a cyclical sector like financials, you certainly take reassurance from those that have seen it before. And I guess that gives you the confidence to see it maybe as a buying opportunity, you know, when you're going through what we've been through recently with the pandemic and, and with the sell-off that's been there. I think you, you need to have experience to be able to sort of gauge and judge what is a buying opportunity or not. Indeed. So you've been now at Polar for 10, 11 years. Yeah. So you've been promoted last year to the co-manager of PCFT from senior financial analyst. So you've, you've learned a lot, you've gained a lot of experience and you've actually nurtured the portfolio and assets under management with the rest of the team. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's been a gradual process of, of taking on more coverage, more responsibility. I mean, I think the team is collaborative in the, in the way that it works. So we do look across geographies and, and uh, sectors together and, and uh, we make decisions in collaboration. But I think you know, from starting out covering one region, gradually I've brought it out to looking at you know, parts of Asia and emerging markets and, and the US and seeing the sector as well transitioned significantly since I started it. So, you know, the whole notion of Fintech wasn't really around when I, when I was starting investing and, and you know, seeing, seeing that or, or the opportunities and range of fintech was very limited. Now that's certainly sort of breaking through and we're seeing much more opportunities. So, you know, it's been a real journey in terms of broadening what I cover, certainly in terms of changing the way that you analyze companies as well. You can't apply the same approach to, you know, analyzing a traditional bank as you would maybe a fintech company. So we've had to you know, create a whole new approach to valuing companies, valuing growth stocks. And I think, so that's what's been interesting about the, the role is that you're always learning. It's constantly changing. So you can't sit still. And, you know, it's been a, it's been a pretty wild ride looking at the sector over the last you know, 12 years or so, but you know, it's certainly never been boring. Absolutely. So with that in mind, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the process and how you and the team go about selecting a stock or a holding where does it start off? Fundamentals, macro, et cetera? 
Yeah, I mean, I think as, as mentioned, we have a database there that gives a quantitative framework to how we look at things. So you know, we do have, say, 350 companies which are on that. And so we, we update that information that's there. That's helpful as a starting point because it can, you know, throw up ideas. It looks across various measures, whether it's valuation, risk, growth, management. And, and that can be a good starting point. You know, it could throw up ideas or make you question, why do you hold one stock over the other? You can compare across different regions. So that could throw up an idea as a starting point. And then you then go to do fundamental research in terms of looking through the financial statements. You look to meet management, you might sort of build a more in-depth model. And you would then, you know, look to, to bring the ideas to the team members. You would discuss it. They're likely to challenge it get you to defend the research that you've put together but it's un unusual for it just to be one person to generate the idea and pitch it through it it's more of a, a conversation and a collaboration and you'll you'll come around to that but i mean you leverage off different parts of the teams will have stronger knowledge in different areas so you might lean on them for those but it, it's much more part of a, of a conversation rather than just one person driving through the Excellent. So let's turn that on its head now. Is it a similar sort of process for when you or someone in the team is looking to opt out and exit a stock or a holding? You think, you know what, this has gone, it's now fully valued or this has happened. So therefore we need to be moving out of this and, and looking for something that's lower valued, but as equal quality, maybe. Yeah, we look to be disciplined in terms of when we would sell. And, you know, we obviously have our various valuation screens that when it might hit a target price. So yeah, we would look to to manage the portfolio on on that basis. We have you know some of the mistakes that we've we've made have, have been too early in in selling stocks that have gone on to do well, and it, there's always a temptation to top slice and to take some profits on on your winners. So I think it's about you know retaining conviction those that are doing well. But I think we've seen a big sort of divergence in the disrupting stocks that continue to do well and continue to re-rate. And they go well past your target prices. So an example of that would be a payments company called, called Adyen, you know, which is particularly well-placed. It's re-rated significantly during the pandemic, but it's seen very strong operating trends. It's got a tailwind from, from winning the sort of eBay mandate. It's increasing its presence with US merchants. And it's best in class as, as a payments provider, but it has re-rated significantly during the pandemic. So on, on a sort of valuation call, we, we sold the position in May, but you know, it's then gone on, kicked on and risen another 40%. So I think it's looking in combination, both at your target prices, but also in the way in which the investment case might have shifted and how does sort of underlying outlook change for the stocks. Indeed, we've seen a massive sea change as such regarding fintech and financials. And I was going to ask you this question really regarding the banking sector and insurtech as to which sector of the two are utilising fintech the best and where are you seeing the most value being created regarding margins and also customer interaction? Yeah, I mean, I think it's broadened out. So, you know, initially we were investing primarily within the, the payment companies and we hold names like PayPal and, and MasterCard. They are very well positioned for that structural shift from, from cash to digital payments. We've only seen that strengthened during the pandemic and people's attitudes towards use of cash i think is a is a permanent behavioral change you know i don't think they're really going to go back to, to using cash in the same way that we did before so i think that you know there's a, there's a clear structural trend in terms of payments and we've looked to, to play that i think we've been a bit more skeptical about the balance sheet type fintech models so i think with the peer-to-peer -peer companies we typically didn't invest in those we were a bit concerned about to a negative customer selection, the, the types of customers that we're bringing on, 
they hadn't really been through a credit cycle. So you know, we wanted to see how underwriting was holding up through a downturn. But I think now we are seeing a broader range of balance sheet type fintech models come through. And particularly in emerging markets, I think that's, that's a really interesting sort of new area for these digital banks because they're being able to reach the unbanked in a way that wasn't possible before. So, you know, it's that combination of broader access to smartphones, you know, some government initiatives to, to drive financial inclusion and the new fintech, you know, that's really making a difference. And we've had a company in Brazil, a digital bank or new bank list this week. I think it looks very interesting. They've expanded, I think, up to around 48 million customers. You know, most of that is driven by word of mouth. So I think 80 to 90% is word of mouth. They've got a, a very high retention rate, but crucially, they've got a low customer acquisition cost. It's about $5 per customer. So when you combine that with a very large addressable market, I think that's really interesting as a sustainable growth case for a digital bank in an emerging market. And I think we're going to see more of these come through. So I think this area could be interesting for the trust going. Excellent. I wanted to go back, if I may. You mentioned MasterCard. And there was something in the news of late regarding Visa. And I wanted to hear your thoughts really on Amazon's recent move, as it stated it intends to block customers from making Visa credit card payments in a stance against absorbing Visa fees. Do you think there'll be a spillover regarding MasterCard? Or do you see this being something that's addressed before it's implemented by Amazon during 2022? Yeah, we have seen that the payment companies be pretty weak recently. And as you mentioned, it's concerns about pricing, about new entrants, it's concerns about regulation as well. In relation to the, to the Amazon news, you know, I think periodically we do see this. It can be a negotiating tactic. So typically they would probably come to some sort of form of agreement and there aren't many retailers or any really with the scale and breadth of Amazon to be able to sort of push Visa and MasterCard in terms of the, the, the pricing cuts. So it's, it's a minor negative, but I don't think it undermines the longer term investment case of benefiting from that shift towards digital payments. They've been pretty smart in terms of their acquisitions benefiting from, you know, account to account transfers through acquisitions like Vocalink and Nets. And, you know, there's a, there's a long way to go in terms of that transition to digital payments. So I think, you know, they, they are going through a bit of a, a weaker patch at the moment, but I think we've seen it as, um, as an opportunity. So we've actually been adding to some of the, the payments names at the moment. Oh, that's good to hear. So with regards to digitizing, which listed entities in your portfolio are doing this best? Which one are you seeing actually investing in R&D, investing in innovation and actually being rewarded accordingly? Yeah, I mean, we're seeing it happen at different phases of speed. But I think, you know, we, we look to play things like the online shift to wealth management through names like Fineco Bank in Italy, which is a, an interesting platform for investing, but also for, for banking as well. And they've been smart in the way that they've been able to attract quite affluent customers in terms of their, their sort of breadth of service that they offer. And they're looking to take that internationally. So I think they're, they're very well positioned to, to sort of benefit from that shift to, to online investing. And they're able to passport their services to other European markets quite cheaply as well. So I think that that's an interesting sort of case in terms of shift towards online investing. In terms of the sort of incumbent players, you know, that shift in distribution is happening at different paces. But the Scandinavians are quite a good example of a region in which they've changed their distribution quite quickly. So if you think about the Norwegian banks, they've cut their branch networks by 80% over the last 10 years. You know, they're now operating with far fewer branches, but they've maintained 
uh, loan market share because they've improved their online uh, services. So we're looking for those kind of names that have a compelling online offering, you know, have an efficient cost structure. These are the types of incumbents that are going to be the sort of longer term winners. We're also looking for the you know the opportunities on the new entrance side as well. So it's, it's looking on both sides, um, you know, both of the new entrance and, and the incumbents in the world. Indeed. So the incumbents are doing well and they're innovating and adding more digitalization to the platforms. And obviously, since the GFC, the, the banks have faced several stress tests, even up until last year with, with COVID, George. So with regards to that and with that in mind, are you seeing and feeling that the banking sector is stronger now and more resilient? Or is there still things out there that you're thinking, actually, they've not resolved that matter out there yet? It's been a significant stress test for the sector. And I think it's been an important one to demonstrate that they are much more resilient. So I think, you know, we, we, we would bang on to investors about how the sector has changed and how it's strengthened its capital and its lending controls. But I think people wanted to see it go through a downturn before they'd actually give it the credit that it's changing. So, you know, we've now, we've now had that stress test with, with COVID, you know, albeit there has been support through, through government stimulus, but you know, the, the sector's held up very well. NPLs have remained at low levels. They've certainly been part of the government's solution for recovery. So, you know, issuing loan, loans like C-bills in the UK or, or PPP in, in, in the US. So it hasn't been a source of instability as it was last cycle, actually. It's been part of the recovery. We've seen banks return to paying a yield very quickly, paying a dividend quickly. I think that's very important as well. So, you know, if you think about the GFC, we didn't even know what surplus levels were because the regulatory minimum kept changing. We had a long period of sort of regulatory tightening. We now know what the minimum capital levels are. We now know what the sort of regulatory framework is. And that gives management the confidence to return surplus capital. So we're seeing that now. So as soon as the capital return restrictions were lifted, we see some very you know, large dividends being paid. So a number of European banks are yielding in excess of 10% because of the catch-up dividends from last year. The US banks if you include that the buybacks and the dividends are yielding just in excess of 5%. So that is a world away from what we saw last cycle when we, we were thinking about or were seeing dilutive capital raises coming through and concerns about systemic risk. So the sector has, has changed significantly and I think it needed to go through a downturn to, to demonstrate that. Indeed, and I think that some banks have come back much stronger than before. I wanted to talk about some of the banks which you, you currently hold, if I may, for just ask you regarding your US and Nordic exposure and UK exposure, which you've got a small amount of. If you just want to share with us the companies that you, you're holding strongest in those areas, please. Yeah, in the US, we own a number of the large cap banks, which we think continue to offer strong value. Uh, you know, they are, they're rate sensitive. Uh, you know, they're going to benefit from pick up in terms of uh, loan growth, we think, going forward. I mean, one of the key areas of, of overweight for the fund is actually to the, the sort of US small mid-cap space as well. And names like Silicon Valley Bank would be a good example within that space. So these are banks which are focused on a particular region within the US or, or they're focused on a particular sector. And so Silicon Valley Bank, as the name suggests, based in California, you know, it lends to the technology sector. It's seen very strong growth, so underlying loan growth of around 40% year-on-year last quarter. It has maintained that with good asset quality, growing its book value by 40% year-on-year. So I think these kind of names are particularly interesting for us. It's a, it's a very sort of broad pool of, of names to look at. There's still over 3,000 banks, I think, in, in the US to analyze. So you know, there's a lot of opportunity there. 
they're also highly rate sensitive. So on average for our US bank holdings, 100 basis points rate rise would increase earnings by around 17% in year one. And that increases in year two as more of the loan book gets repriced. So I think you know, we are seeing a lot of catalysts going forward, you know, not just from economic reopening, but also from high rates coming through and then continue to return surplus capital. So I think it, it is, you know, it does remain a, an interesting point of time for the sector. And, and that's reflected in, in how the trust is, is positioned. Excellent. So with regards to the banks you have in the Nordic region and on the UK stock exchange, what's your exposure there, George? Yeah, I mean, in the Nordics, we just hold Nordea, which again, you know, I think is very well positioned in terms of capital return, it holds a lot of surplus capital, which is committed to, to returning. You know, we think that that leads to a high level of, of capital return, not just for this year, but next. It has a level of rate sensitivity as well, particularly given earlier rate rises coming through in Norway. So it has exposure to across the Nordic region. Uh, and it's done well in terms of upgrading its IT systems as, as well as sort of improving its cost efficiency. So you combine that with an undemanding valuation and, and it looks interesting in a European context. And then we think about the UK. I mean, traditionally in the UK, we've been more positioned within the, the challenger banks. And so we, we've held OSB since IPO. And, uh, you know, it's been one of the stronger names that we've held. I think it IPO at about £1.70, it's now up over £5. You know, it's been in a pretty volatile UK political economic uh, environment since then. We've had to deal with Brexit, we've had to deal with COVID now. But I think what we like about it is it's got a niche positioning within a you know specialist mortgage area. It can generate, you know, attractive margins of profitability because of that niche focus. You know, management have been consistent in terms of delivering the, on their targets. And so it's, you know, it's been a strong investment for the funds and, you know, we think it continues to look well-placed to grow from this level. You know, it's also trading at, you know, a very reasonable valuation around book value relative to, to high teens ROE. So, so that area has always been a sort of strong focus for the trust, but more recently we've brought it out to some of the, the large cap banks in the UK. So adding to positions like HSBC. We like the fact that it is one of the most rate sensitive names and it's become more rate sensitive. So it's taken in a flood of deposits during the, this sort of COVID period. Loans deposits gone down to sort of low 60s levels. They've guided for 100 basis point rate rise to add an additional 5 billion to their revenues in year one. So that's a major uplift to their PBT. So around sort of 30% uplift to their profits um, as rate rises come through. So that really is more of a sort of rate rise play. It's to play on some sort of improving or reduced concerns around China and increased activity in Asia. And you combine that with a very sort of attractive valuation. So at the moment, we are sort of spot for choice in, within the banking space at the moment. There, there's a lot of opportunity given where we are in, in the economic cycle. Indeed, and I think you've made quite a shrewd move in the sense of almost getting your Asia exposure via HSBC because you, you don't currently have any exposure to Chinese banks at the moment. What would need to happen for PCFT to look into those banks more so in China um, to get more exposure? What would need to happen over there? Generally, we don't invest in, in state banks across the funds. I think we struggle in China that often you get state banks which are making decisions which are not based on purely sort of commercial reasons. They might be lending to a state enterprise which they're directed to do so. The level of disclosure is, is not good. So it doesn't really fit our process in terms of analysis and, and getting comfortable in terms of the kind of risk they're putting on the balance sheet. 
kind of strategy that they have. So I think it, it, we don't have any exposure to to Chinese banks, and I think it'd be good if there was a route to get more exposure to the economy through more private sector like companies. We actually have a company called Chelis, which is a Taiwanese company, but has operations in China. So that is a is a way of getting exposure to to China sort of SME lending, but through a private sector company and. So we're looking for those kinds of opportunities rather than going by the state bank. Excellent, excellent idea. Now, you've already touched on banks being one of the biggest beneficiaries of the rise in interest rates. But I want you to touch on the fact that obviously a lot of the conversation this year has been about interest rates, but also about inflation being transitory. And that narrative seems to be changing somewhat and inflation seems to be getting a bit stickier. So what are your thoughts on inflation versus interest rates and how will banks come out of this in the next three to six months to a year? Yeah, I mean, that's the million dollar question. I mean, I think <laughs> we've, we've been in such a long period of declining rates and low rates and, and where inflation hasn't had to be you know, thought about much. And I think until sort of September time, it was pretty consensus that it was transitory and as the supply chain bottlenecks get resolved, you're going to start to see inflation come down again. But we've seen some more uh, signs of more durable inflation come through. And, and you know, whether you look at areas like housing costs or, or wage inflation, I think you know, last quarter, US wage inflation was at its highest point since 2004. So I think you know, we're certainly seeing signs of, of more durable inflation coming through. And we have seen a bit of a shift in tone from central banks to acknowledge that. And I think on a more longer term basis, you think about the potential impacts from COVID and what that means for supply chains being reworked, maybe focus on more sort of regional supply chains rather than globalization. And that's inflationary. And you think about the whole process of moving to a more sustainable economy from, from a climate change perspective. So shifting that green transition, that is likely to be inflationary as well. So I think we see certainly sort of more short term and longer term signs of inflation coming through. And I think we're seeing the market and central banks react to that. So we've seen a bit of a change in tone in terms of the expectations on timing of tapering coming through. Essentially, that, that could finish towards the second quarter next year. And we would expect you know, bond yields to rise alongside that. So I think what's important to note is that there isn't really huge expectations for rate rises going forward certainly not in terms of analyst forecasts for the sector's earnings. So it really doesn't take much to be a sort of positive uplift to earnings when people just start to put through even 1% or 2% of rate prices going through into models. So that, that would have a significant impact on the sector, as you've seen in, in previous rate price cycles. Indeed. And you touched on a very important point in the middle of, of that, George, which I really appreciate. You mentioned ESG and the impact and implications on margins and profitability and also the costs etc could you just expand on that just a little bit because a lot of money is going into esg and supposedly a lot of retail investors are asking questions about the esg side of their investing so could you share a little bit more on that for me please yeah i mean it's becoming you know more prominent in, in every meeting that we do on a, both a micro level for companies but also macro as economies try and transition and governments put more resources to to shifting to more renewable sources of energy that is going to be inflation as they shift to other sources in terms of the sector that i look at you know, the data at the moment is quite patchy in terms of what they provide on, on terms of esg disclosure but we're seeing the regulator look to standardize that so we would expect to get much more granular information for example where does the bank lend 
what kind of companies are exposed to fossil fuel lending. And so we expect to see that sort of level of information improve. We look to do our own analysis in terms of ESG. We try and pull in data in terms of you know, both the environmental, social and, and governance aspects. I mean, we, we'd always focused in terms of governance, in terms of our process, but now we're getting more information in terms of social factors and, and environmental. And in meetings that we have with management, you know, we're much more you know, able to push them in terms of improving their ESG disclosure. I think what we're seeing is a, a real, we're seeing small cap companies get penalized because they don't have the same level of resources to dedicate to this. And I think that's skewing a lot of the third party providers. So, you know, the MSCI might give a zero score to a small cap bank in California because it doesn't provide an ESG report and it's giving a reasonable score to a Chinese state bank that's lending to a coal power plant. So just because they've, they produce a disclosure. So I think, you know, it's incumbent on us as investors to encourage these smaller companies to provide disclosure. Otherwise, they're going to get penalized and that's going to affect their top pricing. Brilliant. I love that reply. Thank you very much for that, George. Investing Matters in association with London Southeast, one of the UK's leading share information websites for the private investor community. Providing share prices, news and data straight to your desktop, tablet and phone. I want you to move on a little bit, um, George, and come back to some of the aspects of PCFT. I want you to talk more now about you, George, in a sense of obviously you're very, very busy with the work that you do. You're analysing all these companies. You're working as part of a team. But I wanted to just find out a little bit more about you as an individual and talk about your outside interests. And I hear that you do some volunteering at the NSPCC, Childline. You tell me about that and what drew you to that particular interest and then talk a little bit more about delivery stuff that you do as well. Yeah, I, mean, I think, you know, I've always enjoyed doing something completely different in my spare time that, you know, I don't think about the sector. I don't think about asset management. You know, I, I've been lucky to, to volunteer at some really great organizations and whether it's a child line where, you know, I worked as a sort of switchboard volunteer. And I think it's obviously really important that, that children have a, a resource that they can go to. They can have people to listen to if they need Unfortunately, during the, this period of COVID, we've only seen more children go through periods of mental health crisis and not have the same resources to speak to someone. So you know, I think that I found very valuable in terms of spending time with, with Childline and, and you know, my experience there just you know, raised my uh, respect for what, what they do and, and the people that work there. I've done a bit of work. Well, I've just started the training and, and completed that for a, a charity called Bookmark, which, which helps children develop their, their reading skills and you know having to young kids myself, yeah. it, it kind of highlights the importance of spending time with kids and, and getting them the, the best out of them. So unfortunately, some children might not have the same level of resources. So, you know, if you can spend a bit of time to, to help them, I think it's time well spent. And then I also do spend some time with a guild in the city called the Leather Sellers, and, and they support a number of charities, often based in London, working in more sort of deprived areas of, of London. But I also spent some time with the investment subcommittee there. And I think that's been really interesting because you work with people from different parts of the financial sector. I mean, typically they're, you know, they've got a lot more experience than I do. I think what's what's interesting is that we can invest with a much different timescale than, than typically you have in the asset management industry. So, you know, we're thinking 20 or 30 years down the line, you know, how should we be positioned? And we work on the basis that Yes, that long-term returns of equities are rates in the fixed income. So we remain fully invested in equities. 
we use active managers to try to get sort of global diversified exposure and, and we have the luxury to be able to sort of ride out periods of, of volatility and I think that's been interesting to see the difference you can have when you have a 20 or 30 year time horizon relative to the much shorter sort of time pressures of working within within the industry. Thank you for that George and I appreciate the work that you're doing in the community because as you've experienced yourself now with the work that you're doing there's lots of disadvantaged communities in and around London and around the whole of the UK so it's fantastic that you're you know even with two small ones as well finding the time to do that so bravo to you. George I wanted to ask a little bit with regards to some of the work that's being done obviously you're part of a larger team at Polar Capital and you did your studies what work is being done within Polar Capital regarding graduates and, and how are you facilitating and supporting that? Yeah, so there is a, I think at Polar they do a good job of supporting graduates and they have an internship program every year which would take people in which are, which are either currently studying or, or recently graduated and they get an opportunity to work directly with analysts or, or fund managers and you know, they get to spend time researching a particular stock and they would then get to pitch that to the management team and you know that would give them time directly spent with an investment team so they actually get a sense of what it is like to be analyzing a stock and what sort of conversations happen in the team so you know at the end of that period you can think it's definitely not for me but I you know it gives you an opportunity to to get a sense of what, of what the day-to-day is like and obviously Polo takes on people directly into the operate into the investment teams or operations from graduates as well so I think there's a pretty good route at Polar for people with, with lower levels of experience. Excellent. So with regards to your journey from HIM Capital to now, which stock has given you the greatest pleasure in the sense of you've researched it, you've analysed it, you've invested in it, and you've reaped the rewards in a sense of the best sort of investment lesson that you've you've attained from the research you've done? Yeah, I mean, I think seeing the, the journey of some of the, the small cap, the niche banks I mentioned, that has been very rewarding because they've been very volatile they've had to you know come through a period in which there was some skepticism as as sort of uk small cap banks so you know i could go back to, to osb as, as a good example of that which has been a fantastic investment for us and but it's you know certainly been a very it has been through periods of, of heightened volatility but it's an investment where you learn a lot from it you learn to stick to your guns and have conviction in what it is to to underwrite properly uh, to be consistent in terms of your delivery. And so seeing that from IPO to where it is now going through acquisitions that they bought Charter Court and to you know, continue to sort of generate attractive levels of profitability, I think that has been a, a satisfying investment and one that you sort of learn a lot from and, and gives you conviction to also look at other sort of small cap stocks that, that might take a beating during during downturn. But if you have conviction in the business, you know, it gives you confidence to hold them through that period of weakness. Thank you, George. So with regards to that, then the ones that got away in a sense of you did all the analysis, the teams and the analysis, but it's turned out that it didn't work out. It was a mistake. Lessons learned. What's been your greatest lesson? Yeah, I mean, we've definitely had our fair share of those. I mean, I'd say we work in a highly regulated sector, so we always have to be careful about the extent to which regulatory goalposts can shift. And we're, you know, on the fintech side, you have to be careful about the fact that some fintechs look to play the regulatory arbitrage between being a technology company but lending into the financial space. And so we've certainly seen some examples, particularly within China, where the regulatory goalposts shift 
and it can sort of undermine the business case for either peer-to-peer companies or companies like Alibaba with without financial. So that's certainly been a, been a lesson learned. Closer to home in the UK, you know, we invested in a company called Amigo, which you know offered consumer finance through guarantor loans. So through that use of the guarantor, it gave customers with a poor credit history access to, to lending. It was regulated by the FCA, but I think looking back at it, there probably were some, some red flags that we could have paid closer attention to. You know, maybe the sort of founder's relationship with the regulator was, was a bit tense. And we saw the regulatory goalpost shift and, you know, the business case get undermined. And you know, fortunately, you know, we took a small loss on it and, and we got out of it before it corrected materially. But, you know, it certainly was a lesson learned about, I think if you're, if you're lending in a sort of high APR space, the margin of error is tiny in terms of how the regulator perceives you. So you have to be absolutely sure about the type of business, the way it's conducting itself with its customers. And I think that's made us more sort of cautious about those types of businesses. Indeed. I mean, I've been looking at the charts of PCFT and it's had an absolutely stellar move since the, the March lows of 2020. What's been the most satisfying aspect of that, George? Because obviously you guys continue to push on and a lot of companies absolutely didn't know what to do last March, April, May but you guys actually persevered and have come through it in really good fashion. It's been a, a roller coaster for two years or so. And I think, you know, important to, to emphasize that it's definitely been team effort and, you know, we've benefited from others in that sense, in terms of leveraging off their, their decisions and, and ideas. And I think, you know, we've benefited from shifting the portfolio quite significantly during that time. So we took down our banking exposure in the early stages of, of covid sort of first, second quarter in, in 2020, when it became clear that the economies were, were heading for a major downturn and we raised our, our payments exposure, you know, as a defensive measure, we weren't expecting them to kick on as much as they did and re-rate as much as they did. But, you know, they, they certainly were a big source of, of alpha for the funds. And I think, you know, as we went through the downturn, we were getting more data to suggest that actually the asset quality was holding up much better than initially feared. And when we looked at things like deferral loans and other uh, sort of leading indicators of asset quality, it suggested that actually the market was much too bearish on the outlook. So from around sort of August, September time last year, we started to actually go back into the banking sector and add to those names. We took up the gearing on the trust as well. So when we had the vaccine efficacy data coming about November last year, we were positioned for that and we sort of built into that as well by raising gearing levels and, and going more into the banking sector. So it was trying to sort of shift allocations of the funds during what was quite a volatile time. And that certainly helped the, the performance of the, of the trust. Absolutely. I, I always like to look at total returns, um, annualised when I'm comparing um, stocks and funds, etc. George, and total annualised for the last 12 months, 29.83, three-year annualized 15.1, and five-year 10.5%. That is consistency, my friend. Very, very well done there. Yeah, we've been yeah pleased with the performance, and you know, it's certainly been a, you know, as I said, a very volatile time. But um, I think you know it's been pleasing in the fact that we've been saying for some time that the sector has become much more resilient. It can weather it down in a different way. So. Having that proof point now, I think, is, is satisfying to be able to go to investors and say, actually, you know, it has been resilient, you know, it is returning to paying dividend yields, and it has transitioned. I think that is, uh, you know, it's, it's been satisfying. 
Yeah, I've, I've asked most of my questions, but one aspect I haven't covered thus far regarding speaking with you about financials, George, is insurance and insure tech. I just wanted to briefly just cover that and for you to just share with me the exposure that the, the, the trust has to the insurance sector and insure tech and where you see the greatest opportunities. Yeah, we're primarily positioned within the non-life side for insurance. It's around 14% of the trust. We invest in some of the Lloyds vehicles, or it could be some of the sort of diversified names in the US, like um, Chubb. We uh, also have a position within life insurance in Asia for AIA, just based on the sort of demographic trends that we're seeing in, in that space. But mostly positioned within the non-life space, we are seeing a rate hardening backdrop for them. So they have the capital to sort of grow into that. I think we've been a bit disappointed in terms of the stock performance. So despite that rate hardening, you know, they, they really haven't recovered to the extent that we thought they would. And I think there's been a, some concerns about losses. There's been elevated catastrophe losses, but also losses related to, to COVID. I think there's been a bit of a reassessment as to the potential sort of frequency and severity of losses going forward because of climate change as well. I think that could be a bit of an overhang on, on the space, but we do see opportunity there. It is useful in terms of portfolio construction, typically or historically has been more defensive, but we are underweight because, you know, I've mentioned, if you want to get exposure and gearing to economic recovery and, and reflation, it's the banking sector that gives you that, that gearing. On the insure tech side, it's not an area that I've looked at in detail. A colleague has looked at it in more detail, but you know, I think it, it's not a space that we know well. And we've looked at stocks like Lemonade before, where we don't think that the sort of unit economics are that attractive, so we haven't invested in it. But I think, you know, as with other fintech space, we are going to get a broadening of opportunities. So we'd like to spend more time on it. Brilliant. George, I've covered all my questions, and it's been absolutely phenomenal to have you on the Investing Matters podcast. Is there anything else you want to share before we close this? No, I think that's been an interesting conversation. I think you've covered a lot in terms of the sector and, and backgrounds. So no, I appreciate the opportunity. And yeah, thank you very much for having me on, Peter. Thank you ever so much. That was George Barrow, co-fund manager of Polar Capital Financials Trust. Thank you ever so much, George, for being on the Investing Matters podcast. Take care. God bless. Thanks, Peter. Thank you for taking the time to listen to Investing Matters. Be sure to check out the London Southeast website for free tools and info to research your next investment. You can also join in the conversation on our social media channels. And don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more content, including our CEO interviews. Catch you next time.